We are in a series, a year-long series we've entitled God's Story, a narrative where we're looking through the entirety of the Bible from the beginning in Genesis to the very end in Revelation, which we'll get to in August of this year. Uh, and right now we're parked in the prophets. And as I was preparing for the message this morning, I was reminded of a story from about 20 years ago that I think fits in well. It's the story of a constable or officer from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And it was a cold early uh, March morning at about 3 a.m. when this constable was called out to the scene of someone stuck in the snow. There had been a large snowstorm in Alberta the night before, and he was stuck in the snow. So as he approached the scene, got out of his vehicle, he went up to the vehicle, he noticed that the driver was passed out, and to his right was an empty bottle of liquor. He tapped on the window, which of course startled the still drunk driver, who made a very fateful decision in that moment. He knew that in Canada they do not take that kind of charge lightly. So he decided to try to escape by driving away. He hit the accelerator, not realizing he was in a snowbank, at which time the officer, who apparently had a pretty good sense of humor, did something I think was just tremendous. He started jogging next to the car that wasn't moving, <laughs> eventually catching up to the driver tapping on the window and pointing for him to pull over. We like to try to run away from difficult situations, don't we? And that driver was no different in that respect. Well, this morning, we're gonna be looking at an author of scripture who tried to do the same. And of course, it's the most well-known of the prophets it's the prophet Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Jonah chapter 1. We'll be there in just a moment. But as we do that, let's do just a quick recap to how we got to this point in God's story. So the story begins, there is nothing but God. And as the story unfolds, we see that he's the true hero of this story. He's the one who always keeps his word. He's the one who's constantly demonstrating faithfulness and compassion. He creates everything, including man and woman, and he makes them special because he's made them in his image to have a unique relationship. And of course, as we know, as the story unfolds, the man and woman turn aside from God and they, and they experience the dire consequences of that decision as they face death. But God still values them, still values man and woman. And to that end, he makes a promise that he is going to do something to allow them to come back into close relationship with him. So it starts with another man, a man named Abraham. And God, through Abraham, promises that he that, or establishes a promise that all the world is going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants. And he establishes a people, Israel, who were to be his special people to show the rest of the world what he is like. And of course, just like Adam and Eve, 
Israel has its ups and downs. They're often looking for something to satisfy them other than God himself. But along the way, God continues to keep his promises. And he sends leaders like Moses, and then Joshua, and then the judges, and then the kings, and now the prophets, to direct his people, to care for them, to warn them, and to point them back to him. Through Israel, though Israel's sin leads to difficult consequences for them, God keeps his promises, and he continues to show them his covenantal love, which then brings us to the prophets and sort of an unusual way, at least maybe in our thinking, of how those prophets fit into God showing his continued love for his people. And so as we look at Jonah, let me just give you a real brief bit of background on him. He's from a town called Geth Hepper, which is a town in the area of Zebulun, so northern Israel, not too far from Nazareth, the town where Jesus grew up. He's one of only three Old Testament prophets, along with Hosea, who Pastor Adam spoke about last week, and Amos, who are situated in the northern kingdom of Israel. He has a decade-long-plus ministry, which we know from 2 Kings chapter 14 happens during the period of King Jeroboam II. During this time, Israel is sort of in a unique place. They are financially prosperous, but the northern tribes are morally bankrupt. As you may recall, there are a total of, I believe it's 19 kings that serve the northern tribes. And of those 19, exactly zero were godly men. Israel was plagued by idolatry, injustice, greed, and a cold religious ritualism that kept them far from the God who loved them. Jonah, though, is the only Old Testament prophet that's called to go to a Gentile nation to proclaim God's message to them. The nation he was called to, as it happens, happened to be the America of their day, the United States of America of their day. They were the most powerful nation on earth at the time, and they would eventually be the ones who would take the northern tribes into captivity as part of God's judgment of Israel. Now, as we look through the book, and I'm sure many of you have read it, hopefully you've noticed that this book is filled with unexpected people and events. And nearly everything that happens in it seems to go against what we would expect would be the narrative. So as we go through this passage and look at some of the key themes and ideas, there's going to be a few parts, and we're at one of them now, that I'm going to give you a chance to actually be actively engaged in the sermon. Now, don't worry, I'm not asking you to come up front or anything like that, so... You can set your worry aside, but I'm going to ask you a couple questions along the way, and I'm at the first one. When you think of the book of Jonah, what's the very first thing that comes to mind about the story? Speak up. I am old and can't hear. The fish, right? The fish that swallows Jonah whole. That's immediately where our minds go to. 
But as we look at this story today, I want you to notice that there's actually more under the surface of the book than on top. And yes, that was a pun, it was on purpose. It's there to communicate to us that this story has more to it than we think, and the parts that we often don't look at as much are actually the more important parts. So as we go through this, let's notice four things together, and they really match up with the chapters themselves. In chapter one, we're gonna see the protesting prophet and the pursuing God. In chapter two, we're gonna see the praying prophet and the preserving God. In chapter three, we're gonna see the proclaiming prophet and the pardoning God. And then in chapter four, we're gonna see the pouting prophet and the personal God. So Father God, we ask now that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. As Jen prayed earlier, God, do the work in us that you intend to do through your word. May we be open to the work of your spirit. May we not keep him at bay. May we not quench him, but God, welcome his work, even if it is painful this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. All right. So as we look at this passage, we start out with the familiar, right? So chapter one and chapter two are gonna be very similar to chapter three and four. In chapters one and two, Jonah is going to flee, but God is going to save. In chapter three and four, Jonah's finally gonna do his job and God's going to save yet again. But we start out with Jonah in his hometown area and the word of the Lord comes to him and says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh, if you know modern geography, is roughly where the city of Mosul in Iraq is located. So from where um, Jonah is, it's about 550 miles for him to travel. Now, of course, what we would expect is that God would deal with his own people, yet here's one of those unexpected twists and turns. Instead, a prophet to his northern tribe, to the northern tribes, is being sent 550 miles to their enemy. We would expect that if God gives a command, the prophet would do what? He would obey, right? And he would head there. Of course, what he really does is he goes in the opposite direction. He travels 35 miles southwest to the city of Joppa, which was like the Las Vegas of their day in some ways. It was kind of sleazy, you didn't hang out there. And he tried to find a boat as far away as he could. And he does, he's successful. He's going to take a ship, in at least his process here, to Tarsus, which most scholars agree is probably a small port city on the coast of Spain, 2,500 miles away. Whatever God is up to, Jonah wants absolutely no parts of it. So God says, go. Jonah says, no. I'm going to go the opposite direction. And look what it says. It says it not once, but twice. He's going to flee from the presence of 
the Lord. Jonah is gladly willing to pray any price to get away from God. Now, here's a lesson for us, okay? If you want to run from God, sin is always going to provide you a place to go. If you want to get away from God, there is always going to be an opportunity for you and I to do that. But now we come to the second question I want to ask you. Can you flee from God? Can we flee from God? No, listen, this is a softball question, guys. I'm giving you the one question, even if you don't get any of the others right, you can get this one right. Right, the answer is no, of course we can't flee from God. The author of Psalms 139 says it this way, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So my wife loves the game Boggle. Has anybody ever played that game? It's like a word game. Now, I absolutely detest it because I can never win that game, ever. Of all the times we've played it over the history of my marriage with her, I have never won a single time. Guess what? If you want to play hide and seek with God, you're going to have the same outcome. He never loses that game as Jonah is going to find out. As the story continues, look what God does. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So God sends this huge storm, so bad, that everybody on board that ship not only thought they were going down, thought the ship was utterly going to collapse. Now think about this for a moment, because this is something we can just pass by. Who's on board? Sailors. They live their life on the sea. They've seen their fair share of storms. And yet this one is unique for these guys. It's nothing like they had ever seen before. So much so, look what it says they do. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid, yeah, and each of them cried out to his God. <laughs> Let me die, right? That's the scenario on this ship. And just like we learned a few weeks back when we looked at the life of Elijah, as he went up against the prophets of Baal, right? Their gods didn't hear him on this ship because their gods didn't exist. Right? But notice where Jonah is. Right? Jonah isn't above board with them. He's not throwing off the cargo like they are trying to save his life. Where's he? He's down below taking a nap. Right? Why? Listen, you might have experienced this in your life. I know I have. Sin lulls us asleep. When we're unaware of the consequences that are coming and things seem to be okay and we're getting away with what we want to do, we think everything's good. So he's down below on the ship taking a nap. And all of a sudden, it dawns on the captain of the ship, right? As they're in the midst of trying to spare themselves, as they're crying out to their gods, as they're throwing cargo over the side, he realizes wait a minute, we're missing somebody. 
And so he looks around for Jonah and finally goes down below deck and he sees him sleeping. Now, this is a weather-beaten old-timer. You know, we don't know if he's got the parrot on his shoulder and the hat, but he's been on the water all his life, probably. What do you think this interaction is going to be like? Is he going to be nice and gentle with Jonah? Oh, man, you must have had a hard day. No, he's like, get up, rise. He says the very same thing, if you notice, that God says to Jonah in the very first verse. He says, rise. But here, it's not because he wants Jonah to go somewhere. He wants Jonah to pitch in. Get up and help. What are you doing? Well, how are you even asleep? Don't you know we're about to perish? Don't just lie there. Get moving. The story continues. Now, now it's become evident that anything they've tried is not going to work. And they say to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know who, on whose account this evil has come upon us. They're like, we've got to figure out who's behind all this, because this, this is not normal. And so they cast lots, right? We don't know if they're rolling dice. Is it a short straw? We don't know specifically. However it is, it falls on Jonah. Now, this isn't because the casting of lots is somehow magical. This is because God is directing it to fulfill his purposes. And so it falls on Jonah, and they're like, tell us on... Um, What's your occupation? Where'd you come from? What's your country? What's your people? And finally, Jonah has to fess up to what's really going on. And look what he says. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Does it look like Jonah fears the Lord right now? No, right? He's running the opposite direction, but he makes a prophetic statement of who this God is. He's honest with them that he's trying to run away. Our sin doesn't just affect us, but those around us too. And that's what's happening to these poor sailors. So if they were frightened before and they were of the storm, now that they hear about this God who controls everything, and he's the one behind the storm, and Jonah's running the opposite direction. They've moved from frightened to absolutely terrified. They're exceedingly afraid because they know that Jonah is trying to flee from God. So we get to the next surprising part of the story. And they say to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? for the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So Jonah gives a surprising answer. If you want this all to stop, just throw me in. Now, we don't know, is that because God gave that instruction to him to tell the sailors? Or is this just Jonah being Jonah? And he doesn't want anything to do with it, so this is a way out. Hey, I won't have to go to Nineveh if I die. 
But notice the sailors. Unlike Jonah, who was unwilling to have compassion on anyone else, they resist initially throwing him in to the sea. So what do they do? They try rowing harder. Come on, we gotta get there. And the storm only gets stronger and stronger. And then, if you were paying attention earlier, they do the same thing they did before, but with a twist. They cry out. But this time, they're not crying out to their gods. It says they cried out to who? The Lord. They have now recognized through this situation, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they're not calling out to their false gods anymore. They're crying out to the one that Jonah told them about. And they're like, please, Lord, don't, let the, don't place this man's life on us. And then over he goes. And what does it say happens? The seas calm. The storm stops. And another plot twist. What does it say? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They were honoring him. There was a sense of reverence that, yes, this is the true God. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. So they're actually holding a worship service. Now, pause for a second because they've realized that God has used the storm to save them. What's happening to Jonah, right? He's on top of the water, and what's the last image he sees before he goes under? He sees these pagan sailors worshiping the one true God that he was trying to run away from. His last image before he's completely submerged is of these pagan sailors who didn't know their right from their left spiritually speaking, worshiping the God he refused to obey. So let me just uh, get to the point of the story we all know. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. One verse, that's all it gets until we get to his prayer in a moment. But let me ask you a couple questions because we're going to do some of the application as we go through. Are you trying to run from God in any area of your life right now? Are there presently any areas in your life where you know God has called you to obedience, but you have refused to obey him? Are there any areas of sin in your life right now where you see the choices you've made aren't just affecting you, but they're affecting others. Or where maybe you do need to see that a little more clearly. And what are some steps you can take? So again, this is not Sunday morning worship service when it's time to go into the word together, is not one person up front active and everybody else listening. This is an opportunity for each of us to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and do the work that he alone can do. So I want to encourage you to that. So that's why we'll have some of those questions. So we move on now 
to Jonah being inside the whale. Now let me ask you another question. This is the participation question. Why does God send a fish to swallow Jonah? What's the reason? To save, thank you, Lynn. I knew I could count on you. Yes, right? This is not punishment for Jonah. This is salvation for Jonah. God is preserving his life even though he does not deserve for that to happen. As you look at the prayer, and we're not going to go verse by verse by any stretch, but if you, if you read through it, and I encourage you to do so on your own, this is what you're going to notice. 24 times in the course of nine verses in chapter 2, Jonah is going to refer to I, me, or my. 13 times he's going to say you or Lord, referring to his interaction with God. In the first half, he's crying out in distress. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Remember, Jonah, he was okay with dying, but now he's actually experiencing the very real possibility. At least for him right now, in the moment that this is referring to, you have to think that might have been going through his mind. But between when he's thrown in the water and when the fish swallows him up, what's happening? What's he saying happens? He's saying that he got cast into the deep, into the heart of the sea, that the flood surrounded him, that the waves and billows passed over him, right? And that he's going down, down, down. Eventually, he's got to the point where the seaweed is wrapping around him, and he sees the mountains below the sea. And guess what? That passage, you can glance over it. That's one more reason I would encourage you to take this as a truthful book. Because to see mountains below the water was not something they could have done back in that time unless he had actually gone through it. But he's going down, 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 and almost at the bottom, and God spares his life. And what does Jonah begin to recognize? He recognizes first that God hears him, that in his distress he cries out and God answers. He realizes God's sovereignty. Notice that he states it was God who was behind him getting tossed in. Notice that he states that it was God's waves and God's billows that were passing over him when he got thrown in. God has control over all that is happening, and now that is sinking in for Jonah a little bit more. But he also realizes the place he wound up when trying to run away from God was far darker than he thought, right? He thought, I just need to get away from God because there's no way I want to do what he's asking me to. But now he's seen what running away from God really looks like. And it's far, far worse. But notice too, he realizes that God didn't forsake him. He's like, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around me in my head and at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you bought my life 
out up of the pit, O Lord, my God. And so eventually, Jonah's distress turns into thanksgiving. Why? Because he realized a truth that we also need to realize. There is not a dark place in this world that we can find ourselves in which God cannot bring his light and save us. Jonah turns from despair to rejoicing as he realizes, wait a minute, God is still with me. God hasn't given up on me. And he says, with thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. And this part, isn't this great? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And what's verse 10 say? And then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up, oh goody, on the dry land, right? Can you imagine that scene? The slime and the, oh, it's awful, right? I heard a gentleman um, not too long ago, he was saying that he and his uh, wife and their children were doing a family devotion in Jonah. And his oldest son, when they got to verse 10 said, oh, that is so disgusting to be vomited out of the fish mouth, to which his younger brother said him, it beats going out the other way, <laughs> right? Some wisdom there for y'all, <laughs> right? Jonah learned something. He learned that when we pursue anything in place of God, we miss out on his steadfast love. You see that? Where he talks about how those who forsake, uh, those who regard vain idols forsake their hope of self, steadfast love. He's realizing it in the moment that he's in the fish's stomach that, oh man, I blew it. So let's ask a couple more application questions. Are you able to see that God isn't absent from the situations in your life. And if you're in a difficult situation, what is one way you can praise the Lord right now? Now, let me ask you a question before we move on. Again, participation question, and we'll be wrapping up soon. What was one thing that appears to be missing from Jonah's prayer while he's in the fish? Did you notice anything, given what Jonah has done, that doesn't seem to be part of his prayer? When we mess up, what are we called to do? Repent. Now, we could maybe look at a couple of the verses and think, well, maybe it's getting through, but we don't see Jonah yet acknowledging his sin. He's thankful for God's mercy and for God hearing him, but we don't see that he's actually repented. And I think there's good reason as we go on to think that that's because he hasn't gotten to that point yet. The proclaiming prophet and the pardoning God. So here we go again, right? It's Groundhog Day. God is going to speak to Jonah again, and he's going to say the very same thing he says in verse 1 of chapter 1 to him, in verse 1, uh, or excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 3. 
Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out it, against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah is given the opportunity to do what he was supposed to have done before in Nineveh. Now, to understand this a little bit, let's understand a little bit about Nineveh itself. Nineveh was founded by one of Noah's great-grandchildren. Anybody know who it was? This is bonus points if you know the name. It's one name in the Old Testament that nobody will ever name their child. Nimrod. All right? I don't know any Nimrod. Well, I know some Nimrods, but I don't know any Nimrod. Right? But in Genesis 10, it tells us that he's the founder of this. And coincidentally, he's also the founder of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a really great history and track record for this guy. Nineveh was the world superpower of their time. It was the seat of the Assyrian Empire. It was a great city, and by great, it was great because of its population was huge for that time, at least 120,000 people. It was great because of the landmass. If you look at the passage, it says it would take three days to get through the city. It was great because of its walls. It had 100-foot high walls that were 50 feet thick, and the main wall ran for seven and a half miles. It was basically a NASCAR track around the city. It was a great city. But what they were really known for was just how cruel they were. And it was actually something they took pride in. Their surviving records from the day and their artwork attest to this fact. In military conquests, they would actually sometimes take the defeated foe, skin them alive, and let them sit out in the desert to bake. That's how unusually cruel they were. And it's these same people who around 722 BC are going to take the northern tribes of Israel captive. So this makes it another unexpected part of the story. God is sending one of his prophets to one of the worst, most brutal places on the earth to proclaim a message that we're going to see is a message of grace. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Now look, look at his message. Now, we don't know if this is the full message that he proclaims or if this is just a summation, but look there in the yellow. It says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is that it? Is that all he says in the middle of the city? Was there more that he just, that they didn't feel needed to be included with the book of Jonah? Maybe. But what's not deniable is what the response will be in just a moment, as we will see. You see, Jonah is probably doing the bare minimum of what he needs to do. But what does it say at the very end there? The people do. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. We don't know how many of the 120,000 plus people in Nineveh were there that day when he spoke, but it was like a viral TikTok video, right? It's just moving throughout the entire nation. 
that these words were spoken. And just like with the sailors, they hear this and it's like, whoa. And they believe the message and they begin to fast. And it's the important people and the unimportant people. It's the men and the women, the old and the young. Everybody's involved to the point that it gets back to their king who's sitting on his throne. And it says it reached the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. So he humbled himself, the kingly garments that made him stand out, he took off. And just like everyone else in the nation, he put sackcloth on to mourn in recognition that God was up to something. And he says, he puts out a decree, and he says, I want every person and every animal in our nation to not eat or drink and to put on sackcloth and ashes that maybe, just maybe, this God who Jonah has declared to us will relent. Maybe, just maybe, he won't utterly destroy us. And what happens? What they had hoped for, God does, right? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said would be done to them. And he did not do it. God saw their hearts. And even though he promised, he's not going back on his promise. That would have happened if they didn't repent. But God was moving them to a place of seeing him for who he was and to experience his mercy. Last participation question. Up until this point in time, not moving forward, but looking back over the last three chapters in the history, what are some reasons you think that Jonah may not have wanted to go to Nineveh? Again, only looking at what we know so far, not moving ahead. What do we know about Nineveh? They were brutal. So maybe it was scary to think about going there, right? That could be one thing. But all the reasons that we could possibly think of are probably the wrong reason, as chapter 4 is going to point out. Because if we were writing this story, right, chapter 3, right here, verse 10, that's where it would end. Right? We'd want to have what Pastor Adam talked about last week in Hosea. We'd want to have the happy ever after. This is exactly right. People believed. A nation was saved. Exciting times. And yet, that's not where the story ends. There's a fourth chapter. As we get to that fourth chapter, let me ask you, are you willing to see yourself as a needy sinner who deserves punishment? And are you willing to turn to God to see if his forgiveness and grace are real? Right? The Ninevites and the sailors had nowhere else to go. They had to try it out and see. 
and they found that it was true. So this last chapter, we see the pouting prophet and the personal God. Now, we would think as a prophet declaring a message on behalf of God, that if people responded in a way that God would have wanted, the prophet would be excited, but not Jonah. He was exceedingly displeased, even angry at what had happened. And now we see the real reason that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He just knew that God would do this. He just knew that God would be gracious, that he would be merciful. And Jonah didn't think it was right for God to do that to people that Jonah didn't think were worthy of it. So instead of rejoicing, he's complaining. And he turns around one of the most precious passages in all of Scripture, certainly in the New Testament and certainly in the law which is found in Exodus 34, which says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He takes that, what is meant to be something that causes God's people to worship him, and he points it back in God's face with his finger. And he said, I just knew you would do this. I just knew it. And to him... These words were no longer great words because of how God displayed them to people that Jonah did not think were deserving. So here's the thing. The sailors learned their lesson about God. The Ninevites learned their lesson about God. There's one character still that hasn't, and that's why we have this fourth chapter. Jonah still needs to learn about who God is. And praise be to God. He's going to show Jonah through the questions he asks, in fact, that he is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah was not a means to an end. God didn't spare him to save Nineveh and then let Jonah just go on his way. God cares about Jonah too. And we see that in this passage. So Jonah pours out his complaint. And what does God do? He just asks him a question. Now think back how many times we've seen God do that. Adam and Eve. Cain. Elijah. Where God comes in and he reveals the heart by asking the question. The thing is, Jonah doesn't initially respond to the question. What does he do? He builds himself a hut and he watches the city. Why? He's hoping that something's still gonna happen. Maybe, just maybe, God's really gonna get him this time. Maybe, just maybe, this is gonna be a replay of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God's gonna pour out his wrath and his judgment on their wickedness. And so he sits there stewing, see his face, you know, that kind of thing. And he's watching and waiting. And it doesn't happen. God, on the other hand, is caring for Jonah and is about to help him see that the problem was not that Nineveh repented. The problem was that Jonah hadn't. See, in Jonah's mind, the the issue was Nineveh repented, this stinks. And God's showing Jonah that's not the issue. The issue isn't their hearts. The issue is yours. 
And so what does he do? He causes a plant to spring up. Now think about this. This is out in the desert. Not exactly the best place to cultivate. But God causes a plant to grow up. It provides him shade. And what does Jonah do? He was exceedingly angry when God spared the Ninevites. And now he's exceedingly glad that this little plant has come up and given him some shade out in the sun so he doesn't get a sunburn. So God allows that plant for a day, and then the next day he sends a worm, and then he sends a wind, and the plant is gone, and Jonah's burning up again. And God comes back and he asks him again, do you do well to be angry? This time adding in for the plant. And Jonah doesn't even really seem to think about the question. He just answers impulsively. Well, of course I have a right to be angry. Angry enough that I just want to die. He's back to trying to run away from God again. But look at, look at the Lord's response to Jonah. Jonah, you didn't do anything for this plant. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't cause it to grow. And yet, you're concerned for it. Why shouldn't I be concerned for a city of 120,000 people who are made in my image, not to mention all their livestock? And how does Jonah respond? We don't know. That's where the story ends. Like, what kind of, what kind of, why isn't there a fifth chapter? Right? Like, don't we want to know what happens to Jonah? Well, I want to get there in just a moment. This is where we're ending. So let me just ask a few last quick application questions. Are there any things in your life that if God took them away, like he did with the plant with Jonah, you might respond by complaining just like Jonah did? Are there people you hope God won't show mercy to? Why? And who is God calling you to share his good news with? Now, let's look at these three as we finish. What happened to Jonah? Well, officially, we don't know. The story ends, but let me say this. This is why I think Jonah got what God was saying, because we have this book. So either he wrote it after the fact, or he is the source for whoever did write it. And why does that matter? Because he lived in an Eastern culture that was high on shame and honor. And to put a story out like this, that casts him in a bad light, would have either been absurd if he was the one who wrote it or libelous if it was somebody else. It wouldn't seem to fit unless Jonah believed that message, and it finally sunk in through his thick skull and hardened heart. How does Jonah fit into the story in his own time, so in the time of the prophets? Well, Jonah is one of the older prophetic books, and he lived in the time before any of the exiles or return. The northern kingdom hadn't been taken into captivity yet. But as we mentioned earlier, it was a time of financial prosperity, but moral poverty. 
And Jonah was a microcosm of Israel in that time. Right? They wanted God to do what they wanted him to do, not what God himself wanted from them. Imagine then hearing a story of God going to your enemy, of being gracious to them, of sharing good news with them, and they turn while you are still steeped in your sin. Lastly, how does Jonah fit into the overall story of the Bible? Hopefully you've caught on by now that we're six months into it, that each book of the Bible is part of a bigger story, and Jonah is too. It's more than just about the pending exile of Israel and the need for repentance, although those things are true and valuable to understand. But Jonah ultimately is pointing us to Jesus. Even Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. When the Pharisees asked him to perform a sign, he says there will be no sign given to this wicked generation other than the sign of Jonah. Jesus saw the story of Jonah as pointing to him. See, Jonah was called to proclaim a message of judgment, but that message only got proclaimed after Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and came back to life. And the message was only embraced by those who were willing to see their own sinfulness, just like it is with the gospel. Jesus is the true and perfect Jonah. Jonah ran the other way when God instructed him on what to do. But Jesus obeyed his heavenly father perfectly, said, not my will, but yours be done. Jonah complained about God showing grace and mercy to his enemies, but Jesus, even on the cross, is found praying for them. Jonah looked down on his enemies in pride. Jesus humbled himself to save his enemies. Jonah was unwilling to deliver a simple message to his enemies, but Jesus was willing to die for them. Jonah came back from the great fish, but Jesus came back from the grave. Amen? Jonah waited for the destruction of the city after his message was accepted. But Jesus is building a new city, a new Jerusalem, where the people who have embraced his message will live with him forever. And that is good news. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you again for your word. We thank you for your spirit taking it, conforming us and making us more like Jesus, fitting us to spend all eternity with him. God, if there are any here who have not seen their neediness and your sufficiency, I pray that through the foolishness of preaching, through the foolishness of the cross, that you would make that apparent and that grace would open their hearts to see the beauty of Christ. Pray in his name. Amen.